0: Hello men. I want to start off today by asking you a question. Have you ever had a perfect pair of gloves? Now, if you have, do me a favor and envision those gloves. Feel what it feels like when you're putting that glove on your hand. Does it fit just right? Does that glove feel good as it slides on your hand? Now, as I asked that question, the, the set of gloves that I'm envisioning are a set of leather work gloves that I absolutely love. You know, the reason that I put that glove on, it might not be fun. I might not be getting ready to do something fun. But when I put that glove on, the feel is just great. It fits just right. And where I'm going with that. Uh, well, first let me say this. For some of you, that may not be a work glove. You know, it may, it may be a set of driving gloves or golfing gloves or a baseball glove, or maybe it's a set of your favorite gloves that you get to slip on when you're going hunting during hunting season, right? Now, you've heard, we've all heard this saying, it fits like a glove. And for me, that's that real specific set of leather work gloves that I was talking about. They fit right. They slip on easy, but they also come off easy. If I need to get that glove off quick, it comes right off when I need it to. Now, the the gloves, they're not so thick that I can't work in them, but they offer me just the right amount of protection for my hands for what I'm using them for, for my use. And so I'm going to ask now, I'm going to ask this in another way. If you've had that perfect set of gloves, have you ever worn a set out? Have you ever worn out that perfect set of gloves and now you find out they're no longer being produced or you find them, you find that set, you replace them and you get them home and the manufacturer changed something. Now they don't quite fit right. The glove just doesn't fit like it used to. Maybe it slips off your hand too easily. Maybe the size isn't right anymore. Maybe they fold over in a way that hurts your hand while you're working. (sighs) Are y'all with me? You got that favorite set of gloves? You know what I'm asking? So the reason I'm asking this, in many ways, my need to repent reminds me of wearing a set of gloves that just don't fit right. Sometimes it takes me a while to figure it out, figure out that they don't fit right. Maybe I'm getting a hot spot on my hand while I'm working. Maybe something is off. I can't quite tell, but they just don't fit right. So here's what I want you to remember today. It's my one big point. If the glove doesn't fit, you must repent. Sometimes we don't know exactly what's wrong, and we begin to feel like we don't fit right. Some of us might withdraw and isolate ourselves. Some of us might self-medicate. Some of us get really short with our wife and kids some of us might feel like we're not quite good enough to serve those that we're called to serve. There are so many ways that we can react inappropriately when we run the wrong direction, when what we really need to do is turn around and change our minds. We need to realign ourselves with God's word, God's will. We need to repent. Now, to further expand on this, I'm going to use the Luke 15 parable. Jesus in the Gospels is a great theologian who begins with a mastery of tradition and then explains to those around him where they have put up too many fences, sometimes fences upon fences upon fences in front of the actual meaning of Scripture. And other times, the, the people that he's talking to actually haven't figured out quite what the Scripture means yet, and he's explaining it in greater detail. Now, many of us have heard this parable called the parable of the prodigal son, and I like that title and I'll use it, but from time to time, you'll also hear me refer to this using a different terminology. I like to think of the Luke 15 parable as the parable of finding the lost. I'd like to start by saying that there's one thing that we can miss when we start to study the Luke 15 parable. And that's that it's actually made up of three parts. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. All three parts make up the one parable. It's not three separate parables. Now, it's certainly fine to use any of the three separately to learn or teach from. But to get the full picture, we can take note that the three build into one wonderful parable. The parable of finding the lost. Luke 15, 1 and 2 says... Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the first thing we notice is that the Pharisees and scribes were complaining about Jesus spending time with sinners. Next we read, So he told them this parable, that's Luke 15, 3. In verse 3, we learn that the three parts, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, they make up one parable. But we also see who the audience was that Jesus was speaking to, the scribes and the Pharisees. Of course, we are also his audience, but to understand who Jesus was speaking to in that moment will help us as we make our way through the rest of this parable. Because the scribes and Pharisees were an educated bunch, they would understand the context of the parable that Jesus masterfully laid out before them. For example, when they would hear a key word such as shepherd, they w- that would bring to mind for them scriptures that discussed a shepherd. The term used for this is remez. Remez really just means a reminder. It's a hint. It's a, it's a way that we can dig in and be reminded of the deeper context. Now, in the first part of the parable, we read about the lost sheep. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. And that's Luke 15, 1 through 7. Now, in this portion of the parable, the main character actually isn't named in word, but it's the shepherd. This reminds us of Psalm 23. Many of us know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, when you have some time, go back and read all of Psalm 23 and consider this part of the parable. When the audience is reminded of a good shepherd, they would be reminded of Psalm 23. The of the Excuse me, the audience will also be reminded of the bad shepherd, as described in Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 8. That gives a sharp criticism of the bad shepherds of Israel, the leaders who have lost their flock. Notice, in the teaching of the lost sheep, there's no condemnation for that sheep, but we have a bad shepherd that has lost part of his flock. This reminds us it's a remes of the bad shepherd, the leaders in Jeremiah 23 that lost their flock. The audience of Jesus in that moment were the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is explaining to the scribes and Pharisees that they have lost their flock. But then the good shepherd, like the shepherd in Psalm 23, goes and finds the lost sheep. The good shepherd, Jesus, leaves the 99 and goes to find the one lost sheep. But that brings up a question. What about the 99 that are left in the open country? At the end of this portion of the parable, Jesus says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Luke 15, 7. I believe Jesus actually stood there right in front of the scribes and Pharisees and told them that yes, he eats with sinners. That there is more joy over that one repentant sinner than over all of them that think they don't need to repent, the 99 that believe they are righteous and don't need to repent. Notice though, that there is joy in heaven, celebration with friends and neighbors because the lost sheep has been found. We also see that there is a cost involved. The shepherd had to seek out that lost sheep. He had to find it, lay it across his shoulders and then carry it back home. And now I'm going to move on into the second part of this parable, the lost coin. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. I tell you, there is more, there is joy in there. Excuse me, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And that's Luke 15:8 through10. So the question to me here is now, how does the lost coin build upon the story of the lost sheep? So in the area where they were, the native building material for houses was, and still is, a beautiful and very black basalt. Simple one-room village homes were about the size of an American one-car garage. Now, windows were really only ventilation slits and walls. They were approximately three inches tall, and they were up about seven feet off the ground. With almost no light from the ventilation slits and black flooring, it's little wonder that the woman had to light a lamp and search diligently to find her coin. Now, the coin mentioned here is a drachma, which was taken out of circulation in the days of Nero and replaced by the denarius. So, in Jesus' day, the drachma was a day's wages for a working man. The woman's ten coins represent about a third of a month's wages. So, take notice of one thing. One change from the lost sheep to the lost coin is that the woman was more open and admitted publicly that she had lost the coin. Now, I'm going to real quickly just run through the rest of the theological cluster of this portion, the lost coin. Again, we have faulty leadership. The careless woman lost a coin. There is again costly grace. The woman had to light a lamp and search diligently to find that lost coin. And again, there is joy. The companions rejoice with a woman once she finds the coin. The coin, though, is completely inanimate, but it still represents repentance in one way. That coin cannot find itself. The good woman must seek out the coin, and in the next part of the parable, we'll see how this leads to the prodigal's acceptance to being found. There are a few more things worth noting at this point. I want each of you to really hear this part. That coin had the same value when it was lost as it did once it was found. Our value doesn't change when we're off course, when the glove doesn't quite fit right. Now, that sheep may have scars from things that happened while lost, but that sheep still has value to his shepherd. Now, I'm going to move on into the final part of the parable, the two lost sons in Luke 15, 11 through 32. This portion opens with one of the two sons asking his father, who was still living, For his inheritance. In their culture, this means that the prodigal cannot wait for his father to die. And even in our culture today, that's really not looked upon kindly, right? Their request would be very disrespectful to the father, and it really would come at a high cost. Yet the loving father, for some reason, grants his son's request. He allows him the freedom to take his inheritance and sell his portion of the estate. In that culture, the father does this even though he knows it will bring shame upon his family. The selling of the son's portion of the estate is explained in Luke 15, 13, where it says, he gathered it all together, or he gathered all he had. Now, the Greek verb used here is a financial term that means turned into cash. And that's how the others in the area would find out. He was selling things, right? And and that's also why it would bring shame or, or cast shame upon their family. The prodigal had to sell his estate to turn it into cash, and that's how those in the village would know. The village would be upset with the son, and that might be one of the reasons why the son would leave the area. But as far as we can tell, though, the prodigal really isn't concerned with how his family feels or how the villagers feel in that moment he seems to appear to just want to liquidate his assets and get out of town. Now, in that day, it was not looked upon kindly for a young Jewish man to lose his inheritance to Gentiles. We learn from the Talmud and also from the Dead Sea Scrolls that there was even a ceremony called the Kezazah ceremony. And the definition of the Kezazah is simply the cutting off ceremony. To discourage any thought of committing this heinous offense, the community developed a cutting-off ceremony. So, should a a young Jewish man lose his inheritance to a Gentile, he would face the ceremony if he dared to return back to his village. So, the fellow villagers, they would fill a large earthenware pot with burned nuts and burned corn, and they'd break it in front of the guilty individual. While doing this, they would shout out, so-and-so is cut off from his people. And from that point on, the village would have nothing to do with that young man. Now, as he leaves town, all of this is in his mind. The prodigal knows he must not lose his money among the Gentiles, but he does, right? In the far-off country, he's among people who own and thereby ate pigs, Gentiles. Fear of the shame of this ceremony and the need to earn enough to recoup his losses, those are important aspects of this parable. So we know what happens, though. The lost son doesn't heed the warning. The word tells us that the prodigal goes on to squander his estate in either loose or reckless living. Think about this with me. As he's going through all of this, as he's doing this, he has to feel that something isn't right. Don't you think? He has to have that feeling that he's living outside of his father's will. I think he had that feeling like the glove didn't quite fit. But the problem is, he chooses to press on in his rebellion anyway. As we know, a fool and his money are soon parted. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. That's Proverbs 21.20. So. The lost son blows all his money. With no money now and a hungry stomach, the prodigal still doesn't repent. He's hungry, but he remembers that cutting-off ceremony. He's still not changed his mind. He begins to look for work, though. He ends up going to work for one of the citizens of this foreign country. He worked in the field feeding pigs. Think about that for just a second. A young Jewish man feeding pigs. Of course that doesn't work out for him. We read we read that no one would give him anything. He actually longed to eat the pods that the pigs ate. He's perishing with hunger, so the lost son hatches a plan. He knows that even his father's his father's hired men have more than enough bread to eat. He thinks to himself, I will get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, "Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men." That's Luke 15:18 and 19. Now, I want to back up for just a second to Luke 17, Luke 15:17, excuse me. That can be interpreted to say he came to himself, which is often interpreted as he repented. And this is how Some great scholars translate that part. They say that this is the point where the lost son repents, but it can also be interpreted to say he returned to himself. Now, that doesn't sound much different, but it could mean that he is still looking internally at this point. I explain all that to tell y'all that I've come to the opinion that the lost son has still not repented at this point in the parable. I think he's just hungry and he has no more money at this point. Even if he has repented, he certainly has no honor for his father yet. Let me ask you, have you ever been there? I don't necessarily mean with your father, but have you ever been in that sort of rebellion? You find yourself going down the wrong path, but you are still being too hard-headed to change your mind to repent. I know I sure have. We can search for all sorts of ways to justify our actions or not own up to our poor choices, can't we? So what is the turning point? The prodigal is started back home. On his way, he tries to settle his nerves. He knows that the townspeople won't be pleased with him. They will perform this cutting-off ceremony. He plays all of this out in his mind. He braces himself for the shame that he's going to feel. He's still thinking of himself, though. He hopes the speech that he's prepared will touch his father's heart. I'm going to jump back to that good father now. The good father knows well before his son ever leaves that he will fail. His disrespect toward the father proved that. But the good father waits for his son to return. The father watches off in the distance day after day. Eventually, he sees a young man coming toward town from a far-off distance. Of course, that far distance isn't just a far-off physical distance, right? It's also a far-off spiritual distance. He can't see his son's face yet, but he knows his walk. He knows his son. The son's head is hung low, but the good father can still tell it's his lost son. The father also has a plan, though. Now, this plan is one that the son and the townspeople don't expect. The father also knows that the town will want to perform this cutting-off ceremony on that young man. The father, again, breaks the mold of the culture of his time. He takes his long robe in his hands, and he runs toward that lost son. He wants to get to the son before any of the village people can make it to him. He knows that if he can reconcile the son before that cutting-off ceremony, then there will be no suggestion from any quarter that the ceremony should ever take place. The lost son is surprised. This hasn't gone at all as expected. His father has run to him in complete humility. Remember, the son has a story all worked out in his head, and his father running toward him was likely not part of that story. The son declares that he has sinned and that he is unworthy to be called a son. Yet, the son omitted that last part of his prepared speech where he was going to request a job from his father. The son never actually says, make me as one of your hired men. Now, I think this shows us that the son has now finally, truly begun to feel the love of his father. The Son has decided against trying to make his prepared speak work, his prepared speech, work to his advantage. It seems to me that in that moment where the Father runs to the Son, the Son truly changes his mind. He finally realizes that something doesn't fit right. He repents. We see the father rejoice. He says, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring out the fattened calf. Kill it. Let's eat. Let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. They begin to celebrate. For the sake of time, I'm not really going to go into great depth about the brother that had always stayed and been home. He had been by the father's side. We see the prodigal make some terrible mistakes, but he changes his mind. He changes his direction. He turns around and he's willing to enter the celebration with the good father. But we are left to wonder what becomes of the other son, the son that had always been home. We don't know if he decided to repent and enter that celebration. That brother may have had the worst story of all. He may not have accepted what his good father had to offer. In the end, Jesus has told the scribes and Pharisees, his audience at that time, you accuse me of eating with sinners. You are absolutely right. I not only sit down and eat with sinners, I rush down the road, shower them with kisses and drag them in that I might eat with them. It is much worse than you ever imagined. Now, in each of the three parts of this parable, something is lost. But there is a progression to this. In the first part, one in 100 is lost. In the second part, one in 10 is lost. And in that third part, possibly one in two is lost. The arena within the, the arena within which the missing animal coin and sun are lost, that arena narrows. In the first part, the sheep is in the wilderness, the wide-open wilderness. In the second part, the coin is lost in a house. But in the third, the son is lost from within the inner circle of a father's love. In each of the three parts of this parable, there is a price to be paid. The shepherd must expend energy not only to find but also to restore that lost sheep. He carries a 50- to 70-pound animal on his shoulders over rough terrain to bring it back home into the fold. Now that woman, she searched diligently for a coin. And the father, he runs out of the house and down the road in humility to reconcile and restore the lost son. Often, we, when we hear the parable of the prodigal, we're asked to consider if we're in the position of the prodigal son. Or maybe we're the son that never left home. Or maybe we're asked if we're the father waiting for someone to return. But I'd like to extend that just a little further and ask you, are you in that crowd, the scribes and the Pharisees? Are you in that crowd of those who believe they are righteous and have no need to repent? To me, it sounds odd to leave the 99, good, healthy sheep, to go after the one lost sheep. It really does. Well, until that one lost sheep is me, right? Until it's you. Remember, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you really realize what Christ did for you? The price paid. When we really consider what Jesus went through for us, what it felt like for God to see him hung there on that cross. We should be thankful and we should want to move from rebellion into repentance. Earlier, you heard me give my opinion that the lost son didn't repent until he saw the good father run toward him. I see that in the light of Jesus on the cross, in the light of God with us, Emmanuel. God pulled on the flesh and lived among us. He understands us. He knows what we go through. God humbled himself to the point he was willing to run to us. And that should show us just how much he loves us. And that should move us to repentance. It's also true in another way today. He is with us right now. The Holy Spirit is with us. There's something very comforting about walking in true freedom with Christ, the sort of grace and freedom that allows us to strive toward holiness from a good heart. Just like that favorite pair of gloves that fits just right, so does walking with the Lord. When we get off course, when the glove doesn't fit, we must repent. Blessings, y'all.